This is CliffCentral.com. I have a very dramatic announcement. So anyone with a weak heart should leave now. Unreal. Revolution. Revolution. Uncensored. Revolution. Revolution. Unfiltered. Revolution. Unchanged. Revolution. Unadulterated. Revolution. Unbelievable. CliffCentral.com. Revolution. 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 A comet explodes in the Earth's atmosphere. The first documented discovery in history. You're listening to Professor David Block. And I have the honor and pleasure today to take you through a fascinating journey, both in cosmic space and in cosmic time. I repeat, comet explodes in Earth's atmosphere. The first documented discovery in history. And this has hit the... This has gone viral, but before I tell you much more, contact details on cliffcentral.com. To reach me in studio, you are listening to Professor David Block, and I am at 0861 I'd love to hear from you on 0861 and the WeChat ID Cliff Central, the Twitter handle at cliffcentral.com, my Twitter handle at Starry Galaxy Man. The Facebook is Cliff Central. And again, the studio number 0861-555-189. Each week we try and bring you cutting edge uh, stuff, if I might use that word rather loosely. Cutting edge, edge stuff, both in the cosmos and in the world below. Now, Duncan, you must, uh, of course, you're just so much younger than me, we would call you a spring chicken <laughs> in the story. But you must have heard of uh, a young pharaoh, a young Egyptian boy named Tutankhamun. No, definitely, Professor. Yes. Mm. And did you know that uh, Tutankhamun had an incredible brooch made up of stones? If we just Google uh, the brooch of Tutankhamun, you'll see that uh, he had a brooch, which I believe went with him to his burial site, a scarab, uh, made up of glorious stones. But right in the middle, there we are, there we are. Now, right in the middle of that brooch, we've just Googled brooch of Tutankhamun, is a big, big, big yellow stone. Now, Duncan, where do you think that stone comes from? I mean, what do you think it looks like? Uh, it looks like something that would come from the bottom of the sea, Professor. Something like from the bottom of the sea. Well, there's a riveting story which has gone viral. It's on National Geographic and elsewhere. That's the result of a comet which has struck the earth. And I don't believe that anybody at the time of Tutankhamun would have known this, that they're actually picking up the result of a comet which uh, struck the earth. I mean, that is the first documented case of uh, first documented discovery in history um, of a comet. Now, let me just lead you into the story, if I may. And uh, so I've got the same little on my laptop, first evidence found of a comet strike on earth. Just going to National Geographic and typing my name, David Block. I'm going into another slide now. Here's the Pentagon post. So that's quite interesting because 
The Pentagon, co- co- the Pentagon post is always something which is uh, only attracts the uh, most recent of stories and perhaps the best of stories. Mm. So let's look what the Pentagon post has to say. What does it say, Duncan? Evidence of a comet strike on Sahara 28 million years ago will be presented. Well, there you are. It reached the eyes of the Pentagon. And I'm so pleased because if one goes down in the article, especially the one in the uh, National Graphic, I'm privileged to see that my name, and of course the name of our team, led by Professor Jan Kramers, is actually mentioned there. So that is really just so exciting. So I need to explain to you, to each one of our listeners, what actually has happened and so forth. Uh, in Sydney and in the United Kingdom, I'm looking at a feed. It says, which has gone viral, Egyptian people filled with diamonds reveals comet that turned the Sahara into glass 28 million years ago. Wait, wait, Professor, I just want to find out something. Yes, you just untangle the story for me and I'll be happy to add on. So there was a comet strike. Then after the comet strike, the Egyptians may have survived it and then used the actual pebble into the uh, onto the brooch. Okay, so let's just unpack that because what Duncan has asked me is extremely important. So, what do you see there, Duncan, on my screen? Uh, it looks like uh, a big explosion. A like huge it. explosion, right? And where's that explosion happening? Over the desert. Can you see that? Oh, there's yes, the desert, mm. and there's a massive, a gargantuan explosion. As this comet comes into the Earth's atmosphere, it actually enters the Earth's atmosphere. It starts glowing a fiery reddish color. Can you see that, Duncan? Yeah. And it explodes. Now, what do you know about the temperatures, Duncan, when something explodes? Uh, It's either the temperature will uh, definitely increase. The temperature will increase, absolutely. The temperature will rise and it'll get hotter and hotter because right above your head, as it were, you will experience the explosion, extraordinary finding of a comet. And I'll tell you what comets are in a moment. But as this comet enters the Earth's atmosphere and it explodes, there's a vast heating up of the sand in the desert. Mm. There's a vast... And in fact, the temperature rose to around 2,000 degrees centigrade, which means that that's high enough for the sand to turn to glass. I thought sand sand doesn't melt. It turns into glass. The sand will actually turn into glass. That's right. If exposed to very high temperatures, um, you know, just Googling glass and sand, you'll see that under very high temperatures, that's what happens. And so the sand actually turns into glass. And when they were looking for beautiful materials to make the brooch of uh, Tutankhamun, they actually used one of these orange, one of these orange, greenish, yellowish, stone, yellowish. I like the word greenish, yellowish because that's what it really is. So what then happened was, is that the desert in Egypt, uh, a huge section of the desert in Egypt, uh, 
literally not vaporized, but was transformed. And it was transformed from sand to glass. And yes, there's a huge area in Egypt where if you're walking in the desert, you'll just see it's strewn with glass. In fact, all you need to do now, and let's do a Duncan, Mm. is Google desert Libyan glass. Desert Libyan glass. So you can do that. And Duncan's doing that. The desert Libyan glass. Libyan mm. desert glass. See, Duncan, there we are. I, I see it, Professor. So are you saying that these are the stones that were caused by the explosion? Yes. But they're not yes. stones that fell from space. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. Is that these are not stones. These are stones. These are not stones from space. These are stones as the result of heating of the sand. Mm. In other words, the comet came into the Earth's atmosphere. It exploded. It heated up the temperature of the sand to around 2,000 degrees centigrade. The sand uh, turned into glass. And you've actually got this glass, which Duncan has brought up. What color would you say best describes it, Duncan? Greenish, yellowish, mm. white, whitish. Yes, there's a little bit of white there, yeah. but certainly green and certainly yellow. And that's what you see if you walk in this area is this uh, Libyan desert glass. And of course, you know, it's very unusual to find glass in a desert. I mean, come on, here's a place of desert, no wind, uh, very little wind perhaps, well, certainly no, not much water. But, you know, how do you get glass strewn over a very, very vast area? Well, the discovery led by Jan Kramers is that uh, the sand makes such sense. The sand was vaporized, but nobody knew why until uh, we all probed this and found out that uh, our discovery explains it all. Um, first published uh, two years ago. It's interesting, Duncan. It's been followed online to date by over 45 million people. People are interested. Uh, and that's what I love about all our listeners today is that people are interested. And that's what I love in talking to each one of you, is that people are interested. There's a niche market out there of people who are exceedingly interested in things astronomical, things to do with our futures, things to do with our past, things to do with looking up. And I'm just so excited to be part of a discovery which has been seen by over 45 million people. Mm. But what's so nice, Duncan, is that yeah, we can chill at cliffcentral.com and we can actually discuss it live. Um, you know what I mean? Shoulder to shoulder, uh, face to face and so forth. So the area, where is it located? It's located in the southwest of Egypt. The southwest Egyptian desert is strewn with this glass, um, scattered over an area of 6,000 square kilometers. I mean, that's really just vast, Duncan. That's awesome. Mm. And the interesting thing is, as I've been saying, is that uh, one of these pieces, it's incredible. If you think of the Pharaoh Tutankhamun, uh, and his brooch. Uh, right there is the scarab. I'm looking at it on my computer screen. 
and this greenish yellowish stone and it certainly occupies total prominence but i think it's so fascinating now with our discovery to realize that this is not just an ordinary stone but is the result of a comet which has struck the earth now what sort of objects have struck the earth in the past well there have been no documented strikes by comets if you look, for example, and if you were to Google, uh, say, Meteorite Arizona, and that's a neat one to Google, Meteorite Arizona, you will see a vast hole. And, Duncan, we can just do this. Let's just do that while our listeners do it too. Um, so we're just going to Google Meteorite Arizona, and you'll see that there's a vast gaping chasm in Arizona, uh, I was there, I visited this place, and it's really awesome to be old, and there we are, mm. zillions of images. But that's not the result of a comet, Duncan, striking the earth. What do you see in the left-hand image, Duncan? Uh, it looks like a really gaping hole on uh, the earth's surface, Professor. That's right, it's a gaping hole, and that is exactly true. A huge chunk of rock came in from outer space. And it created, slammed into the earth, and it created this vast hole. And that's what astronomers call a meteorite. Now, meteor showers, you must have heard of these, Duncan. Professor, meteor showers. I, I just need to know, don't you think that this hole should be much deeper than it is? Ah, not too deep, because remember, this thing, this stone, is going into solid rock. In mm, this case, rock on rock, rock on rock. That's neat. That's really quite. Uh, that's really. I don't know what my twins would say. They're age seventeen. That's cool. That's cool. Yes, I like that. That's cool. And so uh, it's rock on rock, and it will go down, but not too deep. Um, but the point is, I'm rather interested in the circumference. And if you look at this, it's a vast gaping hole which has been created by a piece of rock slamming in from outer space. So, what is the difference between a meteor shower, between a meteorite, uh, and what we are observing here in Arizona? Well, this. When you've got a small piece of rock, like the size of a little pea, if any of you enjoy eating peas, the size of a little pea and it enters the Earth's atmosphere and it comes in and it, you know, starts burning up, then you'll see what's called shooting stars. We're just going to Google this again so that you can see what we mean when you listen to this podcast. So we're just going to Google meteor showers and you'll see zillions of tiny little pieces of rock entering the Earth's atmosphere and burning up. And astronomers call those meteor showers. And there you've got, I mean, Duncan has just Googled a whole lot of them. And you can see glorious um, shooting stars. They not It's a very strange terminology, Duncan, because they're not shooting. Neither are they stars. But what have you thought when you've actually watched these, Duncan? I've thought that I should just make a wish, Professor. <laughs> a wish upon a star. I think that's lovely. Duncan just wishes that he could make a wish upon the stars. And has it left you with any feeling of awe and of wonder? 
Well, Professor, unfortunately, I have never seen an actual shower before. Uh-huh. But what I've seen sometimes is just the, when I look up into the sky, it looks like a star is falling. But I, right. I never know what that is exactly. Right. So that's very interesting. It does look like a star which is falling, which is why they are called shooting stars. But they are not stars. Let's just remember what a star is. If you look at the night sky, for example, and you see stars, those are all suns, like our sun. This is just a tiny piece of rock. It's totally different to a star. Stars are blazing balls of hydrogen gas, for example, fusing hydrogen to helium in their cores often. And so when you look at stars, they are, I mean, immensely big compared to, say, pieces of rock, immeasurably so. The size of a star is inextricably linked with its age, and as stars get older, they can get very, very obese, like uh, Betelgeuse and so forth. But they do look like stars because they are luminous, they are giving off light, and but shooting stars are giving off light for a different reason. The reason that in the uh, screen before me, I see streaks of light is that tiny little particles, tiny little particles the size of peas or pea-sized fragments are actually entering the Earth's atmosphere, burning up and creating that that whoosh effect Mm. as they uh, burn. And I loved what Duncan said is that, you know, it's his desire then to wish upon a star. Oh, Duncan, that's just awesome to wish upon a star. So we're going to have some cool music. I don't know what Duncan's chosen today, but I think that whole theme of wishing and stars needs some spacey music. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Professor David Block. We're looking up today. We've just got such an exciting discovery we're discussing, featured on National Geographic, P.I.N. Kramers at the University of Johannesburg. It's just awesome stuff. Uh, just Google National Geographic and perhaps my name, David Block, and you'll see um, a huge piece on the discovery um, which is published. Uh, Duncan, you've had some questions, interesting questions during the break, which I think might be on many listeners' minds. And so please just ask me those again. Uh, Professor, I just want to find out, is this the actual comet that killed the dinosaurs? Ah, that's a very interesting question. Is this the actual comet that killed the dinosaurs? So the answer is no for some, several different reasons. First of all, the, this happened relatively recently whereas the uh, dinosaurs were killed about, I would estimate, about 65 million years ago. Mm. Now, what happened there is that all living forms, we believe, or nearly all living forms, were absolutely wiped out. So what actually happened there at the extinction of the dinosaurs? Well, this, a huge piece of rock, many kilometers across, many, many kilometers across, entered the Earth's atmosphere, and it didn't burn up. It didn't explode. It was so big that it simply came in, and it traveled inward and inward and inward, and it hit the Yucatan Peninsula. That's Y-U-C-A-T-A-N, the Yucatan Peninsula. Now, if you Google the Yucatan Peninsula, which is Y-U-C-A-T-A-N, Yucatan Peninsula and dinosaurs, you'll see that uh, it lies on the coast. Peninsula, the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, lies just on the coast and uh, just uh, in Mexico. And so what? Um, there's the Chicxulub Crater. Now, what is that? Well, the Chicxulub Crater is, in fact, this. This piece of rock, Duncan, 65 million years ago, struck this peninsula there, and you can actually see it very nicely. There we are. You can see that the half of the red circle is over the land and half is over the ocean. Can you see that, Duncan? Yep. And so what happens when a piece of rock this size hits um, half on land and half on sea. Well, first of all, if you've got a mass of rock striking the oceans, what happens is you get tsunami traveling around the globe, perhaps 20 or 30 meters high. Mm. So if you've got dinosaurs, no matter how big they are, if you've got a 20 or 30 meter high tsunami, a 30-story building traveling around the world, and basically obliterating all land surfaces in terms of living life forms, the dinosaurs don't stand a chance, right, Duncan? Because here they, they chillin'. 
I don't know if dinosaurs chilled, but you know what I mean? Dinosaur. What would dinosaurs do in today's language? I mean, we would say dinosaurs would be walking slowly over the desert sands, but that's David Block language. What's the modern lingo? What would dinosaurs be doing, Duncan, in today's terminology? Uh, the dinosaurs were just dinosauring. <laughs> well, that's neat. I love that. The dinosaurs were just dinosauring, according to Duncan. And I think that's like, okay. So let's stick with that one. I like that word, dinosauring. So these dinosaurs had just had a nice big meal, perhaps. They hadn't quite eaten Duncan because Duncan hadn't yet existed on the planet Earth 65 billion years ago. But maybe they went for his mother. I'm not sure. (laughs) But the interesting point is this, that uh, the dinosaurs were simply dinosauring, whatever that involved, we is left to the imagination of what was a Jurassic Park and many other movies. And uh, so they were dinosauring, and then suddenly these tsunami, these waves came approaching them, sort of 20 to 30 stories high. Well, that, of course, would obliterate um, them totally. So that's what would happen when a piece of rock hits the oceans. Now, when a piece of rock also hits the land, it creates a tremendous amount of dust. And um, some Nobel laureates and many scientists have estimated, Duncan, that so much dust was thrown up into the atmosphere by this rock hitting the um, surface of the earth that the sun was blotted out for a period of three years. Mm. So in other words, that would cause the extinction of the dinosaurs. Two things. Tsunami around the world. So the dinosaurs certainly, certainly the, uh, in dinosauring mode were killed by these massive tsunami and temperatures would have dropped dramatically because the sun was blotted out for a period of around three, four, maybe even ten years. It all depends on which parameters you put into the mathematical model. But imagine if you could be a fly on the wall there, Duncan. How would one feel? I mean, even if you're in a tall-story building, fictitiously so, seeing this tsunami 30 meters high. I mean, that is stunning. And then not seeing the sun for a period of a couple of years. I mean, you can understand that everything growing dark, everything being obliterated by this tsunami, That marked the demise of the dinosaurs some 65 million years ago. So that was not caused by a comet. That was caused by a meteorite strike. And a huge chunk of rock uh, entered the Earth's atmosphere, didn't burn up, and created this massive crater in the Yucatan Peninsula. What's the difference between that and what we've discovered is this. Ours is a comet. Now, what's very special about comets is that comets don't only consist of rock, but comets also consist of ice. Comets are covered in materials of ice, and these ice particles are very cold. Some of their temperatures are minus 250 degrees centigrade. So, you know, it's not minus 1 or minus 2 or minus 10 on the centigrade scale, but minus 250 degrees centigrade. And so you've got this piece of rock uh, that is covered in this mantle of ice. Now, when that comet enters the Earth's atmosphere, the content of the comet 
uh, is subject to such high temperatures and also pressures that the interior turns to micro diamonds. Hmm. And I think that's incredible is that you've got this comet. It in itself is transmuted or transformed into micro diamonds while the rest of the surface below it is heated to several thousand degrees centigrade and the sand turns into glass. Professor. Yes, Duncan. Does the actual comet survive the actual strike itself? So that's a very interesting question. Does the comet actually survive the strike itself? It did in the sense that one day um, a geologist happened to be walking uh, in Egypt. He happened to be walking in the desert area and uh, he saw this very big uh, stone, black stone. And uh, he picked it up and some of it was sent to South Africa for analysis and that is the result of the comet, because comets consist of rock uh, mixed with ice. The ice wouldn't have remained. It would have been vaporized. But that's what you've got. I mean, Duncan's just drawing up brilliant numbers of images on Google of what artists, how artists would depict um, the entry of a comet into your atmosphere. Now, let's just go back to the most famous comet in history called Halley's Comet. Comet Halley, Halley's Comet, H-A-Y-H-A-L-L-E-Y. David and his spelling today. Uh, I haven't got my glasses on. So it's H-A-L-L-E-Y, Halley's Comet. And that's the most famous comet in history. And you can see that when you look at it, it just looks very quiet, doesn't it, Duncan? Absolutely. It looks very peaceful. What sort of feelings are invoked in you, Duncan, when you look up at these comets? I should make more wishes, Professor. Ah, well, you see, Duncan's obviously too romantic <laughs> to have lived at the di- with the dinosaurs dinosaurin. Um, especially if you look at his WhatsApp profile, then you'll realize that uh, Duncan lives in a world of romance, uh, whereas the professor tries to live in a world of romance and also of astronomy. And so I, th- I applaud Duncan. I think it's so lovely. I think it's lovely to meet people who are so passionate about their families and so on. Uh, Duncan has a little saying in his WhatsApp. I WhatsApped it to my friends, but I hoped it wasn't a message which shouldn't be sent to everyone. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that when you look at comets, they do look so quiet. They do look so beautiful. They look so peaceful. They do look so quiescent. But Duncan, can you ever imagine, I mean, or could you have ever imagined that one of these comets could actually be attracted by the Earth and actually explode in the, and that's the, that's the new story, as it were. They do just look so incredibly, not far away, but so majestic with their tails. Now, why do comets have tails? I think it's uh, caused by the movement and the particles that are uh, slowly just Aha. being removed from a well, comet very, while it's moving. Well, that's very interesting. But think of this, Duncan. Comets don't have tails far from the sun. 
Comets only have tails close to the sun. Remember I told you that comets consist of a lot of water ice. Mm. So when comets come close to the sun, what happens is that the water starts heating up, right? And it evaporates. And so it starts flowing off into space. And it creates these huge, beautiful tails. In other words, what are those tails? It's really signifying that a huge amount of water ice has started evaporating and um, this ice mixed with dust um, evaporates and creates these incredibly long, beautiful cometary tails. That's what Comet Halley is so famous for, is its beautiful sets of tails. So the important difference between a meteorite and a comet is this. Comets consist of a lot of ice. Okay. Comets consist of a lot of ice, Duncan. You've got the central core, which is rock. But comets consist of huge amounts, relatively huge amounts, of ice mixed with dust. And how do we know this? Well, whenever a comet comes close to the sun, it forms these incredibly long, beautiful, flowing tails. And that is exactly what you are seeing uh, as you look at them are these beautiful heads or heads of a comet and then these incredibly long, quiescent, tranquil tails, as it were. Now, that is that is actually what struck uh, Egypt, is that a comet entered the Earth's atmosphere and uh, exploded. Now, you can imagine when something of this magnitude, Duncan, actually enters the Earth's atmosphere and explodes. On my laptop screen, I've just got an image of this cosmic dust. And what does that tell you? I mean, what sort of, I mean, what does that invoke in you, Duncan? Uh, it really, to me, it looks like the end of the world. It's interesting that you say that because it looks ethereal. It almost looks like science fiction. It looks beautiful. It looks surreal. I think the English word surreal would be appropriate here. I don't know what the modern word would be. Duncan, you tell me. I mean, how would you, how should my twins feel when they're looking at this as if they're in Star Wars or? They would say, they would say it's unbelievable. <laughs> Well, I won't repeat that because, you know, my tongue doesn't do the twisting Duncan's young tongue does. My tongue is more, um, I suppose, <laughs> I can't do all these clicks. I wish I could do all these clicks. Uh, I just think living in Africa is such fun and if I could do all these clicks. But I think I must have disgraced Mr. Mandela many times when I tried to say, oh, so how do you actually say it, Duncan? It's uh it's Corsa. It's Corsa. Yeah, I, you know, these clicks, they, they're just magical. I just wish I could do them, Duncan. But the professor needs help and many lessons. I've got a question, professor. Yes. Uh, uh, it seems to me that the science world is maybe too focused on a comet hitting mm -hmm. Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anyone who's observing comets potentially uh, hitting the sun or is it just too hot to be hit okay so that's a very interesting question duncan has raised is the possibility of comets um what would, be the, the what would be the consequences what would be the consequences is basically they'd simply fry up so if a comet were to hit the sun it would simply vaporize these comets are so small in comparison to the size of the sun uh let's just as a matter of interest, uh, to answer Duncan's question, you can do this for fun on the podcast, is Google Sun Earth 
to scale. So if you look at the sun and earth to scale, then you'll start seeing exactly what I mean. Sun, earth to scale. You'll see how, I think you'll get a feeling. There we go. There's a lovely image right there. Duncan's brought it up. The first one on the left, upper left, Duncan. Wow. Is, you can see that the whole earth is minuscule. I mean, if that's the size, the sun of an orange, the earth is like a little Marble, can you see that? Yeah, uh, yeah. So a comet uh, would just be m tiny, I mean minute on this scale. I mean comets are smaller than the Earth in terms of the heads of comets, in terms of the heads, not the tails, but in terms of the heads. And I mean there you've got it. It would take 1.3 million Earths to fill up the sun. So if you imagine 1.3 million Earths and comets are much smaller than the Earth, the heads of the comets, I mean, it would have no effect on the sun whatsoever. It's a brilliant question. But you'd need over 1 million Earths just to fill up the volume of the sun. And so clearly if a comet were to strike the um, sun, long before it struck the sun, it would literally melt away. So there's no way of any object t even touching the, uh, the sun's surface? Not touching, no. Um we do have comets called sun-grazing comets, which do come close to the sun. But if a comet were to be in direct strike with the sun, like this comet was, Comet Ipatia, uh, which exploded over the Libyan desert, um, you wouldn't even notice it. I mean, it wouldn't have the minutest effect on the sun, Duncan, because it's just so incredibly small. Um, how many Earths would it take to fill the sun and there's some beautiful links here, over 1.2, 1.3 million Earths. So the only thing that could potentially destroy the sun is the sun itself. Ah, what can destroy the sun? That's fast. That's, that's really, that's a fascinating question. Now, the sun uh, shines, if you like, or gives off light because hydrogen gas is fueling into helium gas at its center. Okay. So you've got hydrogen gas. And the hydrogen gas is being changed or transmuted into helium gas second by second. And that causes the star to radiate light. But what happens when the sun runs out of gas? Mm. What happens when a car runs out of gas? The car slows down and stops. And dies. And dies. That's right. Well, the car doesn't die. I suppose it's the person inside the car who dies, especially if they're going to marry someone, as I saw in an advert recently. The pastor was going to marry someone and his car ran out of gas. And uh, They had to the use the internet. <laughs> I remember. They had to use the internet. Well, I think if it was my great-grandfather, he wouldn't have had that mast with the internet. And those brides, uh, the brides and grooms would be grandfathers by now. And... Uh, he still wouldn't have arrived for the wedding. But the interesting thing there is that if the sun runs out of gas, that's what destroys it, if you like. And so when, uh, when will our sun run out of gas? Well, fortunately, it will happen before Greg runs out of gas. Um, uh, the sun will run out of gas in 4.5 billion years' time. So in 4.5 billion years time, 4,500 million years time, 
uh, which perhaps exceeds the lifespan of Rena or myself, um, the sun will run out of gas. So that is the catastrophic event, Duncan, is that it's not going to be caused by, you know, comets impacting the sun, for example, or even little meteors or little asteroids impacting the sun. They'd have zero effect on the sun whatsoever. But when the sun itself runs out of gas, then, of course, uh, that would demarc- that would demarcate our demise. Now, I've drawn, a, uh, drawn up a very interesting picture here um, of our eldest son, Aaron, who's 23. And, Duncan, what do you see here? What is Aaron made of? Uh, it looks like he's made out of skin. That's right, skin. But what is the skin made of? Now, the interesting thing is... You know, often at funerals, they say from dust to dust, we are made of cosmic dust, cosmic dust. That's right. And that's what I've been a professor of for a great number of years before Duncan was born or Dory was born or Jonathan was born. I've been a professor of cosmic stardust. And I say that with such passion because that is what I find so romantic, dust, cosmic stardust. And that is why I'm so excited about this whole discovery, because this comet contains a vast amount of cosmic dust. Now, why should cosmic dust be so important? Well, cosmic dust contains the clues to the formation of life. Carbon-based stardust, grains of dust in space from which you and I have formed. Now, let me just recap that in the last three minutes, is that you've got this carbon-based stardust around these heads of the comets, um, you've got these icy mantles, you've got carbon being formed there, and comets can be the carriers of these carbon-based grains of stardust to the earth. I remember a very close friend of mine, the late Mayo Greenberg, one of the world's most famous professors in cosmic dust at the University of Leiden, And he for many years postulated and wondered and reflected upon the glory of comets entering the Earth's atmosphere and depositing their stuff. And what is their stuff? Their stuff would be carbon-based stardust. And so, in a very interesting way, what was discovered here in Egypt, this black stone, might contain secrets of what elements our solar system contained, Duncan, when it formed billions of years ago. Locked inside those stones, or that big stone, or that stone, are the secrets of the very formation of our solar system. I find it amazing to think that a comet uh, entered the Earth's atmosphere and exploded. I think that's awesome. But I also think the name is so awesome. Hypatia. H-Y-P-A-T-I-A. H-Y-P-A-T-I-A. And that's interesting. The comet has been named after Hypatia, who is the first female astronomer. She worked in Alexandria, Duncan, in Egypt. 
And I just think that that's so lovely is that, you know, for so many years, astronomy has been regarded as a male regime or largely dominated male regime. But here the comet is named after Hippotea, an absolutely brilliant lady in Alexandria in Egypt. She was a philosopher of great note. She was a person who thought very deeply into the wonders and workings of our cosmos, suffered the most horrific death at the hands of fanatics, the most horrific death. But we honor her today, and uh, I'd like to end off on that note, that we dedicate this feed to all our women out there who are looking up and to think of the central thought. Pinch yourself as you're hearing my voice. You are made of stardust. This is Professor David Block. Until next week, goodbye. I was never brave. I was young, out of control, drinking, drowning, brewing the storm. I was never brave. Bengi Yikwala, buckled, crawled, crashed. I was never brave. Fled, bled, followed, never led. If only someone had stepped in, pulled me out. That's why I became the mentor I wish I'd had. Help under 18 say no to alcohol. Sign up at sabstories.coza. Hashtag be the mentor. A South African Brewers Initiative. Christmas is on the way, and so is the happiest family event of the year. The Parkview Charity Christmas Market at the George Hay Park in Parkview from the 27th to the 29th of November. The Christmas Market is a weekend of fun. Unique arts and crafts, brilliant gift ideas, kids' fun galore, big screen sports, a beer tent, and a champagne and oyster bar with continual live music. Parkview Christmas Market, for a great time, with all proceeds going to charity. This is CliffCentral.com.